You're listening to West Virginia Week, a regular podcast from West Virginia Public Broadcasting that looks back at the major stories of the week. I'm your host this week, Emily Rice. The October interim meetings of the West Virginia Legislature kicked off this week in Charleston. Children's health and education continues to be in the spotlight with state leaders discussing everything from school discipline to childhood literacy. We'll also hear about how the end of pandemic-era benefits will affect child care costs and quality, and more on the conditions inside West Virginia jails and prisons. And thrill-seekers from across the world are gathering at the New River Gorge Bridge in Fayetteville for the annual Bridge Day event this weekend. Let's jump right in with a few short news stories. More than 300 teens are in out-of-state facilities because there's no place to house them in West Virginia. Eric Douglas has more. The Joint Committee on the Judiciary heard testimony Monday from Judge Steve Redding from the 23rd Judicial Court in Berkeley County. He says one of the biggest problems he faces as a judge is there is no in-state facility to handle violent or out-of-control teens in West Virginia. This creates an untenable situation where it's too dangerous to leave the child in the community, but no in-state facility will accept them, again, because of the severity of their behaviors. Jeffrey Pack, the commissioner for the Bureau for Social Services, confirmed there are 320 violent West Virginia teens in out-of-state facilities. Both men agreed that the state legislature should look into establishing an in-state facility. For West Virginia Public Broadcasting, I'm Eric Douglas in Charleston. West Virginia's Corrections Commissioner says staffing and facility conditions are improving. Randy Yowie has more. Corrections Commissioner William Marshall says for the first time since COVID-19 hit, jail and prison guard vacancies are under 1,000, standing at 990. Speaking before the Legislative Oversight Committee on Regional Jails and Prisons, Marshall said the $21 million the legislature approved for pay raises is helping grow guard academy classes and retirees are coming back to work. He says changes in the six-week class, getting recruits out on the floors at two and a half weeks, gives recruits and supervisors decision-making experiences. It gives them an opportunity to see if this job fits them or not. He says 330 to 340 National Guard members under emergency orders continue to staff corrections facilities. Marshall says $60 million in deferred maintenance projects are underway statewide. For West Virginia Public Broadcasting, I'm Randy Yowie in Charleston. The state's educational leaders and legislators continue to focus on the issue of school discipline. Chris Schultz has more. The Joint Standing Committee on Education heard a presentation of school disciplinary data Monday evening. The data, previously presented to the Board of Education in May, showed that more than a third of all foster care students were referred for a disciplinary incident, and one out of every four foster care students was suspended from school in the 2022 school year. Delegate Heather Tully, Republican from Nicholas County, asked Drew McClanahan, Director of Leadership Development for the West Virginia Department of Education, how outcomes for this group can be improved. We have to do a better job of identifying who our foster care students are. And we have situations where maybe a school doesn't know that that child's in foster care. He said the study has allowed the Department of Education to identify gaps in the school support system for foster care students that can now be addressed. For West Virginia Public Broadcasting, I'm Chris Schultz in Morgantown. A West Virginia Department of Health and Human Resources supervisor has been indicted in a federal investigation involving COVID tests. Caroline McGregor reports. 
Timothy Priddy is accused of signing off on $34 million in COVID-19 tests and supplies without verifying the invoice's accuracy. According to the indictment, investigators were trying to establish if vendors were overbilled or fraudulently received payments from federal money distributed through the DHHR. Huge inconsistencies were discovered in actual tests performed and the number of COVID test kits the state was paid for. During his Thursday briefing, Governor Jim Justice said it was a confusing time for the country. To say it was not a challenging time, I mean, for crying out loud, it was tough stuff. You know, Tim Pretty is, is suspended at this time from the DHHR. We'll have to let the courts make the decision on his fate, that's for sure. Pretty was appointed director of the DHHR's Center for Threat Preparedness in 2022. For West Virginia Public Broadcasting, I'm Caroline McGregor. Governor Jim Justice is encouraging all West Virginians to reflect on the importance of Early Childhood Literacy Friday. Chris Schultz has more. In July, the governor declared October 20th National Early Childhood Literacy Awareness Day in West Virginia. During his regular briefing Thursday, Justice called childhood literacy absolutely essential. The more you have the opportunity to read to a child at a very, very young age, do that. Because it will only make them better and better readers as we go forward. And those folks that that are great readers seem to excel in every way. The proclamation Justice signed cites a national assessment that showed West Virginia's fourth graders are close to 10 percent behind the national average in reading proficiency. The recently implemented Third Grade Success Act hopes to address early childhood literacy shortcomings. For West Virginia Public Broadcasting, I'm Chris Schultz in Morgantown. On Thursday, I reported on respiratory illness season and how WVU health experts are encouraging West Virginians to promote health and safety in their communities. West Virginia University health experts are encouraging everyone to practice prevention through vaccination as flu and RSV illness season approaches. Dr. Gretchen Garofoli is a clinical associate professor at the WVU School of Pharmacy. And so it's important to get those vaccines to prevent those types of diseases, or at least to help us get a milder case if we happen to get sick with them. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention Center for Forecasting and Outbreak Analytics is predicting a similar respiratory illness season compared to last year, with a possibility of more widespread illness and healthcare system strain. For Appalachia Health News, I'm Emily Rice in Charleston. Appalachia Health News is a project of West Virginia Public Broadcasting with support from Charleston Area Medical Center and Marshall Health. The New River Gorge National Park celebrates its 43rd annual Bridge Day event today. Brianna Heaney has the story. Highway 19 crossing the New River Gorge Bridge will be closed Saturday from 7 a.m. to 5 p.m. for West Virginia's largest annual single-day festival, Bridge Day. Organizer Tim Naylor says thousands of spectators will be able to walk across the bridge and watch base jumpers take flight from the bridge. So this is the only day it is legal to base jump in a national park. Um, It's also probably the premier base jumping event in the country, if not the world. It really is unique. Plus, we're talking peak collars of the fall. So being able to walk out into the middle of the bridge and really take in the beauty of the gorge. Attendees can bring in a bag smaller than five by seven inches. Anything larger needs to be a clear bag. Parking lots are free, but the shuttle bus to the event is $5, cash only, per person, each way. For West Virginia Public Broadcasting, I'm Brianna Heaney in Charleston. 
State Treasurer Riley Moore has clarified the allowable spending for HOPE scholarship funds. Chris Schultz has more. Moore, who is also the chairman of the HOPE Scholarship Board, released a letter Wednesday emphasizing students enrolled full-time in public schools are not eligible to participate in the HOPE Scholarship Program. That includes public charter schools, and the letter specified that, quote, the HOPE Scholarship Board approaches public charter schools and the services they provide the same as regular public schools operated by county boards of education. The confusion stems from HOPE Scholarship students who are not enrolled full-time in a school being allowed to use the funds for certain classes or services a public school might provide. As funding for public schools is based on enrollment numbers, Moore's letter says the restriction prevents schools from, quote, double-dipping or receiving both public funding and HOPE funds for these services. For West Virginia Public Broadcasting, I'm Chris Schultz in Morgantown. Marshall University has received national recognition for its excellence in cyber defense education. Caroline McGregor reports. The university was designated a National Center of Academic Excellence in Cyber Defense Education by the National Security Agency and the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. The recognition is awarded to accredited academic institutions that offer cybersecurity degrees and or certificates at the associate, bachelor's and graduate levels. Marshall University's designation extends through 2028 and is expected to attract more students to help fill a current shortage of skilled cybersecurity positions. To qualify, the program had to demonstrate to the NSA its commitment to train future generations of cybersecurity professionals to reduce vulnerabilities in the national infrastructure. The recognition is expected to increase funding opportunities for the program, specifically scholarship opportunities for students. For West Virginia Public Broadcasting, I'm Caroline McGregor. This week, I reported from the Joint Committee on Children and Families, where West Virginia lawmakers discussed medical exemptions with vaccine experts. West Virginia allows for medical exemptions to vaccines, but does not allow for exemptions based on religious or philosophical beliefs. Some lawmakers would like to see vaccination laws changed in the state. Senator Michael A. Zinger, a Republican from Wood County, spoke against vaccine laws during the meeting. And here we have this this doctor who's a very intelligent guy, and I appreciated him coming, but how in God's name do you think, Doc, and, and these folks at DHHR, they have the right to tell the parents that they have to vaccinate their children. This is just not acceptable. Dr. Joseph Evans, former chief medical officer of Marshall Health and former chair of the Department of Pediatrics at Marshall University, said the World Health Organization has identified vaccine hesitancy as one of the top 10 threats to global health. Thanks to our vaccine laws, our state is among the best, safest from vaccine preventable illness. We're a model for other states trying to decrease vaccine preventable diseases and and therefore I think we need to to keep our, our vaccine laws. If it's not broke, don't fix it. Shannon McBee, state epidemiologist, explained the process of compulsory school immunization law exemption to members of the committee. West Virginia is considered to have an exemplary immunization model with no recorded outbreaks of measles. The most common um, requests that are approved by the Bureau for Public Health are for children who have immunosuppressive medications or have a documented severe reaction to a vaccine or are a recipient of an organ transplant. For Appalachia Health News, I'm Emily Rice in Charleston. The cost of a controversial natural gas pipeline has gone up and its completion delayed. 
Curtis Tate has more. The 303-mile Mountain Valley Pipeline will now cost $7.2 billion to finish, and that won't happen until next year, its builders told the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission. In a filing Wednesday, Equitrans Midstream cited labor conditions as part of the reason the project won't be completed this year and above the $6.6 billion it previously estimated. Construction resumed on the MVP over the summer after Congress required its completion. It had been held up in court numerous times as environmental groups and landowners successfully challenged the project's federal permits. The Fourth U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals dismissed the remaining cases after lawmakers approved those permits. For West Virginia Public Broadcasting, I'm Curtis Tate in Charleston. You're listening to West Virginia Week. And now, some of our top feature stories from the past week. On a national level, the end of pandemic-era benefits will affect child care costs and access. This week, I reported on how West Virginia hopes to avoid these shortfallings by relying on individual child care subsidies that date back to the 1960s. September 30th marked the official end of federal pandemic-related stabilization money aimed at bolstering child care services in the U.S., meaning states had to have spent their allotted funds by that date. In 2021, $40 billion in funding went to child care centers across the nation from the American Rescue Plan Act known as ARPA. According to the Administration for Children and Families, in West Virginia, 645 child care centers and 925 child care family homes received stabilization payments totaling more than $160 million. The child care centers used the funds to pay for personnel costs and keep programs staffed. In some cases, child care centers used the funds to keep prices lower for parents struggling to pay for child care. Child care family homes mostly used the money to pay for personal protective equipment to ensure safe environments for children and staff. Of that $160 million total, $101 million in ARPA funding was allocated to DHHR's child care subsidy program. In order to increase reimbursement rates and allow child care providers to be paid on the basis of enrollment in their programs rather than daily attendance. Kent Novisky is the Deputy Commissioner for Programs and Policy at the Bureau for Family Assistance at the DHHR. We switched to doing something that providers had been asking for for a long time, which was to pay them uh, a monthly rate for each child enrolled in their setting uh, instead of a daily rate that they had to calculate based on the attendance of the child. While the 2021 ARPA stabilization funds were a source of additional funding, West Virginia has had access to child care subsidies since the Appalachian Regional Development Act. We here at the, at the West Virginia Department of Health and Human Resources, or even before it was the Department of Health and Human Resources, we've been doing that since 1969. That, ha- that is an ongoing thing. It is not going away. Those child care subsidies are not going away. Novisky said it is important to understand that in the child care industry, subsidies refer to the payments that are made to providers for services provided to specific children. All right, so it's an individual payment per child who's being served in a child care setting. 
Novisky said some ARPA funds had dedicated purposes or places they had to be spent. One of these designations was subsidy payments, so the state increased the rates it paid for each child. The DHHR also expanded eligibility to everyone regardless of income who met the definition of essential worker, as outlined in the governor's March 2020 executive order. Novisky said the DHHR has taken steps to mitigate the loss of ARPA funds. Novisky also said in October of 2022, the DHHR restored income eligibility requirements for child care subsidies. When we saw that those monies were dwindling, we circled the wagons here, tried to figure out what we could do to stretch those out as long as we could, and we put an income limit back on. When this ARPA funding allocated for subsidy assistance was exhausted in May of 2023, the DHHR set aside $24 million of Temporary Assistance for Needy Families, or TANF, funding to allow providers to continue being paid by enrollment for services rendered through August 2024. So until uh, September of next year, services provided through August of next year, then uh, we'll be able to keep the pay-by-enrollment going, as well as those increased rates. Novisky and other experts agree a long-term solution would be the best-case scenario. Now, we don't anticipate readjusting rates downward, but, uh, you know, absent an influx of additional funding, we may have to go back to a pay-by-attendance model, uh, which, again, is not ideal. Child care providers nationally are advocating and, and trying to move toward the, the pay-by-enrollment model. And in fact, I think Congress is looking at the issue, so we hope they have some additional funding that'll come along with that. Bill Franco is an associate professor of political science and director of graduate studies at the West Virginia University Eberly College of Arts and Sciences. He worries that childcare settings will struggle to pay their staff at the same rate they have since 2021. And so what's going to happen is these centers are not going to have the, the money to pay uh, living wages to the, the child, uh, to, the, to the center workers. And so you're going to have fewer people who are going to want to enter that industry or stay in that industry. It's going to be much more temporary like it was prior to the 2021 influx um, of, of, the, of the child care stabilization funds. For Appalachia Health News, I'm Emily Rice in Charleston. H. Byron Ballard is a practicing witch in Asheville, North Carolina, and the author of four books about the craft, including her latest, Small Magics, Practical Secrets from an Appalachian Village Witch. Inside Appalachia's Bill Lynch spoke with Ballard about the spirits and cryptids of Appalachia. Byron, first, thanks for coming on Inside Appalachia. Uh, It's a pleasure to speak to you. Um, It's not very often I get to speak to an, an actual Appalachian village witch. So <laughs> you, you may be the first. You may be. I don't first. know, Bill. I, you know, I listened to the show and I, I'm pretty sure you've probably talked to a witch or two already. They just might not identify that way. Well, just to kind of get the, as a getting to know you sort of thing, uh, how did you become such a thing? How did you become an Appalachian village witch? Well, I mean, I took that on as a as a branding thing, just to be honest. I mean, I'm I'm Appalachian multiple generations back and I've been a witch my whole life. My mother's family all identified themselves and were identified with that word back to like five generations that I know of. So I've always been that. 
And then when it came time for me to, to kind of have a, a hat rack to hang all my hats on, mm -hmm. that felt like a good one. So I, I called myself the village witch and I know some people who function as village witches in Britain. And one of them contacted me and she was like, well, what exactly is it you do that you think you're a village witch? And I said, well, I go out and I bless the cornfields and I, I used to bless the tobacco crop and I'll come out and clear your house if it's got something uncomfortable in it and I'll bless your babies and I'll, you know, bury your grandmas and, you know, all that stuff. And, and, and my friend said, Oh, well, no, that's, that's exactly what a village witch does. And I said, well, yeah. Witchcraft or being a witch in the 21st century, how is that different than being a witch in the 20th century or even the 19th century? I would say it's less threatening than it used to be, but in some places it's still just as threatening. Um, how is the role different? That's a really good question. I mean, for people like me, the role isn't any different, obviously. I'm going to do a baby blessing. I'm going to do a hand fasting when people want to get married. I will do a funeral, all that stuff that people traditionally did. Plus, right now, I've got tinctures laid up in the dining room that I have to remember to go in and shake every day so that they're going to be good um, next month. So I do a lot of those similar things, but something that we have the ability to do now and the privilege to do is that I can openly talk about it and I can openly teach it to other people. So people don't have to rely on reading a book, though. I mean, I'm a writer. I want people to read all the books, but I, I can teach people face to face and I can tell them what works for me. And what doesn't work for me and encourage them to do those things that they feel like they're drawn to do, but maybe don't have the courage or the confidence to try. So that's one big difference. But the practice itself, I don't know that it's really changed. We um, we joke about there's a ceremonial magic and then there's what I do, which is sort of I reach in my pockets and see what's in my pockets and I go pull a little plantain and some rabbit tobacco and stir it all together. And for some people, there is a sense of witchcraft being a very high ordered religion. And you will hear some people talk about that they are a member of a witchcraft religious tradition. But for people like me, it's not necessarily a religious thing, though it is connected with spirits and with spirit things, but it's not necessarily a religion. Let's talk a little about folklore. So places like the United Kingdom have pixies and elves in Europe, and we have goblins, haints, and the Mothman. Don't forget the Mothman. Did we <laughs> bring our fairies and spirits over with us when we immigrated from Europe or wherever, or were they already here? I'm going to say yes to both of those, because I think already there are spirits that are attached to land. And these are some of the oldest mountains in the world. And how could they not have spirits attached to them? But I also think that a lot of my people, certainly, they brought some of that with them. And they they absolutely brought the folklore with them. But now you bring up Mothman, and I've got a question for you. Oh, no. Are all cryptids men? I mean, there's the Boojum, there's Mothman, there's the New Jersey Devil. Are they all boys? That was Appalachian Village Witch H. Byron Ballard speaking with Bill Lynch. You can hear the rest of that interview and more on Inside Appalachia, Sunday mornings at 7 and Sunday evenings at 6 on West Virginia Public Broadcasting.
On Monday, I reported from the Black Infant and Maternal Health Working Group's breakfast and meet and greet with lawmakers at the Capitol. The event brought together advocates, affected community members, health professionals, and policymakers to address Black infant and maternal health outcomes in West Virginia. Representatives from Black by God, the Black Voter Impact Initiative, the Morgantown Kingwood NAACP, Morgantown Now, the West Virginia Center on Budget and Policy, and Team for West Virginia Children participated in the breakfast. Attendees heard from experts like Rhonda Ragambe, the health and safety net policy analyst with the West Virginia Center on Budget and Policy. The most recent multi-year data showed that black babies were twice as likely as their white counterparts to die in their first year of life in West Virginia, um, and that's an unacceptable statistic. According to the March of Dimes, the number of preterm births between 2019 and 2021 in West Virginia was higher for black infants at 17.6 percent compared to 12.4 percent for white babies. Preterm birth is a high indicator of risk, but West Virginia law currently does not allow the mortality review team to interview the family of an infant or mother who dies, which limits the scope of the information they collect, according to Ragambe. That has only been exacerbated by the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, and so without that knowledge on the state level, we really don't know what that looks like. But given the other health indicators that our black population often faces, we can reasonably assume that the issue is worse for black West Virginians as well. Ragambe said more data collection and the sharing of that data by race in a timely fashion would give a more complete picture of black infant and maternal health outcomes in West Virginia. When controlling for variables like income, education, um, and other pieces, we still see black women facing higher rates of mortality than their white peers. Um, which all of those things mean that in West Virginia, we really, really need to address this issue and, and just ensure that moms and babies live. Attendees had the opportunity to share their stories with lawmakers directly at Monday's breakfast. Some have lived experience of racial discrimination in maternal health, like Elizabeth Ann Greer Mobley. I have a master's degree plus 42 credits still did not save me from suffering two horrific miscarriages from suffering from catastrophic and well catastrophic in the sense of I hemorrhaged my children ended up in a PICU, NICU, NICU first and it just does not protect you in the state of West Virginia from having horrific and challenging medical situations when there's black racism ingrained within the maternal and infant medical industry. Mobley moved from Maryland to Martinsburg with her family when she was 14. She lovingly calls herself a black Alachian. Because I claim West Virginia, I've been here for 18 years. My babies, I'm giving birth in West Virginia, educated in West Virginia. I stayed in West Virginia, have a 501c3, an LLC. I'm proud to be here. I stayed here. But you don't want me. You don't want my children. So my life, my, the lives of me and my children are not worthy. In addition to being involved in her community in Martinsburg, Mobley is also a foster parent for the state. She said she attended the breakfast at the Capitol so that no one else has to go through what she has gone through. And so I don't know what it's going to take or what I have to say or what all I have to give to, to make the story palpable enough for us to impact and affect 
real change. Because what I went through should never happen again. Ragambe said improvements could be made by prioritizing families in the upcoming 2024 legislative session. Creating pathways for midwives and doulas to be reimbursed um, by health insurance companies so that uh, pregnant people have options um, in terms of what their care looks like. Things like paid family and medical leave so that people can recover, deepening our wealth of resources around mental health. There are a broad range of, of options and you know, the more that we prioritize families, whatever that looks like, the better that our outcomes will be. For Appalachia Health News, I'm Emily Rice in Charleston. Appalachia Health News is a project of West Virginia Public Broadcasting with support from Charleston Area Medical Center and Marshall Health. That's it for West Virginia Week. Thanks for joining us, and we'll see you back here next week. As always, you can see these stories and more at wvpublic.org. I'm Emily Rice.